0: Welcome to Ag in Conversation, where Emily and Vanway, two friends and agri-optimists from Otago, New Zealand, sit down weekly to digest the hottest topics in the world of ag, bringing a deeper level of discussion and understanding to the issues and opportunities faced by agriculture and rural communities both in New Zealand and around the globe.
1: Okay, so this week, did you see that video come out, Emily? Um, It was by... The Land Board in Australia. It was an advertising campaign. Apparently, they do them every year. It's a really interesting one. They had um, basically different generations on different blocks of land that were slowly pulling away from each other, almost with like an earthquake type situation. So everyone's off on these separate little islands, and then they were throwing all the generational stereotypes uh, at at each other. You know, oh, millennials are useless. They just want avocado on toes all oh, boomers all those sorts of things and then someone starts cooking some lamb on a barbecue and slowly everyone the islands start to pull back together as everyone starts to say nice things to each other and it ends with them all hanging out around a barbecue hugging the grandparents hugging the grandkids and um just having a great time because they're all bonding over lamb and everyone's mutual love of lamb what do you reckon to that one Emily
0: Well, it's pretty obvious that everyone's going to bond over a good piece of lamb on the barbecue, I would (laughs) would (laughs) say. If you listen to the last episode, you heard about my fond love for (laughs) roast lamb or a few chops. Um, But I thought it was really interesting that Australia actually pulled those two concepts together um, because I think sometimes we shy away from acknowledging some of those different generational interests um, and how that's changing. We hear a lot about four generations in the workplace at the moment. And um, I think sometimes we don't bring that into society so much. And I thought, yeah, I thought they did a really great job at showing that, you know, if we're not careful, um, there are some quite large differences that can drive us apart. But when we do bring each other together on a journey, um, there is a lot to talk about together as well so yeah yes, i thought it was thought
1: really, it was really lovely. interesting mm. yeah it was really lovely wasn't it to see them just coming together like that and bonding over a good old-fashioned bit of meat everyone could agree there was no worries about who's a boomer and who's a millennial i mean full disclosure we're both millennials um but you know there's plenty of that sort of boomer stuff oh, okay boomer out there and all that kind of thing mm. and then you know, I'm raising a couple of Gen Zs, and there's always these divides. But really, well, there's more in common than there is of difference, especially when it comes to lamb. It seems.
0: Yeah, and I think often in our small communities, I don't know how how you find it down the the valley the Way, but I think sometimes because there's less of us, we don't we're not exposed to some of those stereotypes as much. You know, we've kind of all just got to chip in um, and kind of move. You know. Do what needs to be done otherwise we don't have the services in our small rural communities
1: oh couldn't agree more like i, I think that's something you just notice in these in the, the we rural areas especially with the kids when they're all playing together because quite often people are like oh well you don't want the little kids coming along to your 13 year old's birthday party and i'm like yeah we do they all just play together because we only have tiny schools or quite small schools you know if you get picky about only being friends with the kids in your year you're gonna have pretty pretty small pool of people and you won't get a cricket game together or something like that so um yeah mm. i think we're really lucky now are not we in rural rural communities that we we do when we hang out And we've got easy access um, because two people of different generations, because let's be honest, every generation's got a lot to offer each other.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think we do a really good job of learning from the different um, generations as well and um, being inclusive and interested in what everyone else has to say. And I think sometimes that's how we get to where we are, is learning off what's gone before us and not just throwing that out with the bathwater.
1: There was a quote we used to have on our history room door that stuck with me forever um, in our class in high school was to know nothing of what happened before you were born is to remain forever a child. And I think that's part of that as well. You know, if you can pull through the knowledge from others then you can hopefully avoid a couple of mistakes that they've already been there and done and and worked the best way through. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great one. speaking
0: of bonding over a good piece of lamb did you see yesterday that beef and lamb new zealand have announced a partnership with the olympic team to take them to paris 2024
1: it's pretty cool eh? Oh, so good hey eh? it's so awesome to see good high protein nutritionally dense food i.e beef and lamb uh, being promoted with our sportsmen and women like I, have, I know you're on the same boat as me with this but you know high protein you cannot get a better fuel for our athletes um i mean my world revolves around the world of rowing at the moment and i know you used to row too so you understand it all and just trying to get protein into growing bodies is hard work and so it's great to see that the olympic committee and Beef now have to work together so our athletes can set off hopefully in peak form yeah, I agree, and I think it's awesome
0: to see um, our country really support the ag industry in this way. Because I think quite often we get the, a lot of media attention goes towards some of the um, documentaries. I don't know if you can call them documentaries, but those <laughs> shows that get put online on the streaming services that really promote benefits of other diets, um, and they seem to get a lot of ear time. And I'm not. Putting those down, but I do know for a fact that those documentaries aren't always factual. So it's really cool to see our country get behind um, such a big industry in New Zealand and really show that support. And I think that's that's really important and should be a big pat on the back for all the farmers out there.
1: I couldn't agree more, Emily. Yeah, you've summed it up perfectly there. Um,
0: so yeah, it's really cool to see. Um our country and the olympic committee get behind sheep and beef farmers especially in the year that we have been having with land prices um and put that on a world stage and i think it's going to be awesome to see those olympians over in europe supporting um our farmers in such a big industry and i think it's a real pat on the back for, for all of us back home um but speaking of europe one of the big news stories that's been breaking over the christmas break um and it's sort of been coming for the last sort of twelve months or so, maybe even longer, is those farmer protests over in Europe. And I know that you've been reading a lot about this, but anyway are you able to sort of give us some
1: insight from back closer to your homeland? Mm-hmm. yeah, I'll be your European correspondent for you, Emily. I couldn't quite swing yeah. a trip, but um yeah. <laughs> I'll do it from North Otago. Um so basically we'll start off with Germany. So Currently, you may or may not have seen heaps of videos of tractors blocking roads and heading into the major centers into Berlin, around the Brandenburg gates, etc. So it's been, they planned a week initially of protesting and despite the fact that it's absolutely what we call Baltic in the UK, so absolutely freezing temperatures over there, they're still coming out in huge numbers, they're having barbecues, they're all actually really civilized, very relaxed protests. Um, But they definitely have a point to be made. Um, And they're actually being joined now by quite a lot of other people. The truckers have decided to join in this week and trucks are rolling in from across Germany and even from eastern parts of Europe. And I think a few are coming through from Belgium as well. It's basically um, turning into not quite like our protests, almost a grander scale than we even had here. Um, and it's just been going on and on for a long time. I guess because it is a quieter time of year, the farmers couldn't afford to be off-farm. So why are they doing this? So basically, initially, the German government decided that they were going to cut the ag diesel subsidy. So they currently receive a subsidy um, for the value of half of the cost it is to of ag diesel. So that so that like, and my, also, my mind...
0: That's crazy. I know. Half, I know. Like they get subsidised. Half of their egg diesel. That is, yeah, insane. I mean, obviously we don't have subsidies, but half in Germany. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. Some of it is similar to how we can claim back on our petrol. You know, we don't have to pay road users um, on petrol cars because you pay for it in your tax. <laughs> well, it's a bit like that here, but it's diesel, so they weren't paying that anyway. Um, And also the tax breaks that they currently get um, for buying agricultural vehicles were going to be removed as well. So it was going to hit them hard in their back pocket. If you imagine the cost of diesel just doubling overnight, that's pretty tough. A lot of the farming that goes on in Europe is a lot more um, tractor-based. Like, you know, think about how often we don't... I literally just put some PK in the trailers today and I use the tractor for less than less than 40 minutes that's but I did the whole rest of my day without it but they would have tractors going day and night just for the dairy farms um so there's this yeah there's a lot of demand it's a big it's a big pinch point for them the government has since bowed to pressure a bit and has compromised um their position so they've stopped the idea of removing the tax breaks on the ag vehicles so the tax breaks remain and they have decided that they'll phase out the removal of the diesel subsidies rather than just a sudden um, end to them. So now so that's they're going a little to bit end more in- stomachable. Yes, in it, but still only 2026 for that to turn around. Yes, the reason why the government is trying to get all this money because I was I was like, why are we suddenly needing to collect all this money? You know, is there a lot of research Ooh. for climate change or what's going on? The government has got itself in a big hole and it needed to get um, a large amount of money. And it was originally going to take that money out of a pot that was designated to COVID and that they no longer needed for COVID, but it was, it went through their court system and it was ruled that that was unethical and it couldn't be done. Uh, so they can no longer fund those subsidies through that, that way. So anyway, it's a moving of money around the government. They've got a coalition government who are not very popular over in Germany, And they were doing some creative accounting, which then got pulled up and then they decided to take that money off the farmers basically to fill their, fill their hole in their back pocket. Um, currently talking about some (laughs) unethical behavior. (laughs) I know, I know. You've got to understand why the farmers are angry. It's not even just those two issues really. Um, and so that's what they're now saying is, even though the government has bowed to pressure and reduced what they'd originally asked, um, and they and the government says, look, we've compromised, you need to compromise. But the farmers, a lot like here, have said, look, this is just the straw that broke the camel's back. We were already on bended knees, trying desperately to survive. Um, I don't know what you've seen of German farms in the past, Emily, but a lot of them are small family farms. And Mm. so they're not big numbers. They don't have economies of scale. And so these kind of things will hit really hard. Um, So they are now pushing for a reduction in the green agendas, as they call them. And they want assurances that the government will adopt an agricultural policy that will support the family farms. Um, And yeah, and they're just claiming that they've been under increasing pressure for years. Sound familiar? Yeah, so... It
0: does sound familiar. and I mean, it's pretty easy to think that the farmers are sort of getting fed up with the regulation. But I think there's more than that, isn't there, behind these? um, It's not just a regulatory story and it's not just um, farmers not wanting to change, is it?
1: No, not at all. And I think along with everything, it's the pace of change. And a lot of it is about taking people along for the ride. You can't do all this and cut all the subsidies and cut all the the support they've had around them without engaging with the farmers, but also providing alternatives because it's, otherwise it's just a tax on ag. Um, and I appreciate a lot of other industries like the trucks, truckers, hence why they're joining in, are also facing this with the cost of diesel, et cetera, um, and support for that disappearing. But it just feels, yeah, it just feels a lot like, they're asking them to do a lot with not a lot in return um, and not a lot of support.
0: Mm. So these aren't only happening in Germany though, are they? There's a few other countries in Europe that are sort of having the same, I don't want to call them issues, but what, yeah, having the same protests going on. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Yes, of course. And so all through 2023 and even back into 2022, you'd have heard of, um, the French, the French have been protesting. Now, as a Brit who lived close to France, um, the French do love a good protest. I remember every time we went over, the shops were always shut either for a Saint's Day or a, um, a protest of some sort that was going on at the port at Calais. But um, the French farmers in Dijon decided that they were going to spray manure all over the council buildings, so nice and dramatic. Um, road signs were turned upside down and they had protests across the country. So basically they're just sick of the green movement, as they are calling it in France, and they're set up with a direction of policies. They cite higher taxes, increased cost of diesel, um, late payments on EU subsidies, um, and regulations imposed on agricultural workers and competitions from import in their unrest. in February, the EU court overturned a French policy that allowed sugar beet growers to use an insecticide banned in the EU. In the EU. Um, so that caused quite a lot of stress for the French farmers. Um, French farmers union have had a bit of a win um, and they've secured a decrease on two taxes for the coming year. Um moving on to the Dutch. So we've all heard about what's been going on there for the last 12 mm-hmm. months. Uh, they were basically the Dutch government took quite a heavy-handed approach and decided that they were going to buy up farms and just shut them down to stop emissions and they wanted yeah, wow. huge reductions in stocking numbers. yeah, yeah, and they just they just wanted to meet their emissions target and a really low bit of low hanging fruit there for them was was farming the dairy farming and farming as a whole mm-hmm. yeah. Sorry. And oh, so in June.
0: If we're buying up that, because they're quite tracked DTV, are they, and I don't want to make this a um, a carbon, a, you know, a greenhouse gas conversation, but are they emitting sort of more CO2 rather than the methane? Is that kind of what's
1: happening over there? Uh, as a percentage, yeah, they definitely would be um i'd say they would a bit but um oh this is this is what is the really difficult thing i think at the moment with international farming i was listening to something this morning on it as well everyone is claiming that they are the most energy efficient or the most you know emissions efficient farmers in the world you know we hear it here all the time you know everyone's like but but we've just got sheep on a hill all year you know we're so efficient and I do tend to think that that one might be on the right path. But then we've got farmers in the UK who say, well, their systems are really efficient and they don't spread effluent until, you know, a specific time of the year or because of housing and they've got storage. And they've got all different ways of calculating it. So without an agreed upon global calculator, I'm not quite sure how we're going to be able to set a level playing field, to be honest. Mm, yeah.
0: I was just thinking, because if you're buying at farmland in the hope of reducing gases you know is that really getting on top of your emissions targets you know is that actually is that actually a productive step you know does that actually
1: help well I I mean personally I don't think so because I think you're taking because the Dutch farmers are extremely efficient farmers and you know for every um we've got family there when I mean, we used to go visit you know them They're really good operators. They know what they're doing, and they make the most for every hectare of land they have. And all you do is send it off overseas. And so there'll be other farmers, and it might be the Eastern Bloc, or it might be over in Asia or Africa who haven't got access to the technology, etc., that the Dutch farmers do have. And then the danger is, well, we're making more emissions, and then we're flying Mm. the food in. But the Netherlands can turn around and say, oh, well, look at us balance sheet here we're doing a great job yeah it's a
0: real systemic problem isn't it when if you look at your inner system you know you might tick the box but when you look at it as a global system it's actually just a shuffling of um a, yeah shuffling of accounts isn't that
1: yeah and that's what's the the really hard thing is um it's hard to get that complete global cooperation because everyone just sort of either wants to virtue signal and say that they're doing something, but they're not. Or other countries, they honestly, the privilege that we have to even worry about this sort of thing needs to be recognized. Mm-hmm. If your country is all about just trying to feed your population, as much as you might be the ones impacted the most by any climate change or any effects of emissions, you you really can't, you haven't got the luxury to spend all this time and effort on it
0: mm, yeah or like i heard a quote the other day which definitely is going to hit a lot of our sector this year and it was from carlos Beggery, who's a nuffield scholar this year and he said um if it was on rural exchange with dom george actually he said if you can't be in the black it's very hard to be in the green um so basically if we're not making profit how are we going to Be able to fund any sustainable movement, and I guess that's what these guys are coming at as well, aren't they? That if they can't actually make money because of other things, they're not going to be able to do any environmental improvements.
1: Yeah, that's such a great quote, isn't it? It really sums it up, and it's you know it's on a farmer scale, but also on a countrywide scale, Mm. and at the end of the day. You still need to look after your people. You need to provide them with health care and all those other things that we take for granted and to then start taking those away because we're cutting production in the country in order to meet some global targets. It's uh, yeah, you're not going to last long in a democratically voted government doing that. Yeah, it's a very complex issue really, isn't
0: it, well, that we're seeing at the moment is these different... Um, well, these competing values kind of hit, really, isn't it? And they collide at quite a pace. And we shift from sort of a regular bottom line to a triple
1: or quadruple bottom line equation that makes it really challenging. Yeah, it, I very much agree. And the fact that, um, you know, this is on a global scale, like you said, so you've got all the politics thrown into the mix as well and everyone's mm. trying to get votes and, and you've got to make um, politically popular decisions that might not actually get to the results in the end. And I think one of the things to take from all this as well is the fact that it's all very well pushing all this on farmers and asking farmers to make all these changes, but unless there's actually the technology there for them to change and to be able to develop if the electric tractors are out there and, you know, Mike Casey's got that one over in Central for his cherry orchard near you, but is that gonna work on a dairy farm? getting covered in cash and bits getting into everything? Probably not yet. Is it going to work on a sheep and beef farm feeding out bales in the winter? Not yet. You know, like we just need to have the technology there before we start asking people to adopt yeah 100%
0: um and I guess this brings me to another question I've got so without taking sides or you know trying to be too controversial how can we go high here and as a, as a country or as an industry you know um is it that people the you know the majority of the world urban population they just don't care they want their world cleaned up but they don't want to have to change their habits and so you know agriculture is being a bit of a scapegoat um is that what's happening or is this actually the reality? Like how can, you know, we actually take the high ground and, you know, continue our, to hold our heads high through this?
1: Well, yeah, that's really interesting what you're saying about do others not want to change, etc. Um, as humans, I think we are an innately selfish human beings. We're, we're, we're innately selfish beings. We are programmed to make sure our world is as comfortable and as easy and suits us as well as it possibly can. And so when you're in town, um, you might want to push the responsibility out to someone else. But I do think that actually there's more support in urban areas than we think for Mm. the rural farming community and them trying to move on and adapt and reduce emissions, et cetera, et cetera. You've got I always sort of think that they're, the big headlines that you hear are, you know, urban versus rural, you know, that sells mm. a newspaper that gets a click online. But in reality, um, putting another hat of mine on Federated Farmers did a survey last year and they actually found that there was a lot of support in the rural areas for farming and what farming's going did through. Do you mean in the urban areas, sorry? Sorry, yes, in the urban areas. A lot of a lot of support yep. in the urban areas for mm. rural farming and and the rural communities and what they're going through and trying to manage all this. Um, I'll just throw it. I know you love Taylor Swift and I love a good Taylor Swift facts. <laughs> um, I'll throw this one in here for you because when I was doing the research, but so in the last three months of 2023, she alone created 138 tonnes of carbon, taking 12 flights to see her other half, Chelsea, Travis Kelsey, to offset those emissions, she would have had to have planted 2,282 trees and let them grow for a decade. So I don't really think that it's urban versus rural so much no. as your average bod, your average Joe blogs, just feeling like we're all putting our recycling out and we've got people flying around doing that kind of carry-on. Like, why Why do we bother a little bit? You know, there's that kind it- of feeling. Yeah and I guess on the urban population
0: like I'm sure you you know you've been to town recently there's a huge amount of electric and hybrid vehicles in town I think it mm. hasn't quite moved so much out to the rural population yet and I definitely can't um say that I drive an environmentally friendly vehicle but I notice more and more that there are people making conscious choices and I think the rural population will definitely get in behind this as those vehicles become available. And, you know, for their town or family vehicle, I've seen mo- lots of people get up as a, t- to try to bring out one, maybe it was at the Highlander, I think has become hybrid.
1: And I've
0: seen a few of them on the roads as well. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I know a lot of people who have that tan car and in quotation marks as a hybrid, uh, there's a lot mm. of those appearing up the valley now. I think one of the tricky things is that the utes will have to take quite a battering and have yeah. to be exposed to quite a lot of dust and dirt. And so if, in order to invest in such a large amount of money, you would kind of want to know that it was actually going to work. I mean, we've looked at the UBCO bites on farm, hopefully going to have a demo day out here later in the year and um, see how they might work to reduce yeah, cool. you know, our emissions a little bit, just on a small scale. Um, but again, you kind of need these things to start being proven for us to take mm. those in, those financial risks.
0: Yeah, particularly in the current environment that we're in with commodity prices. You know, export down, import up. It's not really um, making great
1: story for purchasing new um, assets on farm, is it? Not really. No. And but to be fair, I think rural. Um, families are a lot better at using sustainable items in other areas. So a, a lot of us will wear a lot of wool, you know, it's been cold the last two mornings. I've been double laid with wool, um, wool wool t-shirt on now, wool hen- blend um, t-shirt on. But we we do try to look for those more sustainable yeah, options yeah. that maybe others aren't exposed to in the world of fast fashion when you're going to the mall every weekend. Etc. Yeah. So true. I think we're all yeah. doing our bit. It's just probably a little bit different depending on where you live. Yeah. True. Yeah. Very true.
0: So the other thing that kind of jumped out at me in the conversation um, was around subsidies, and obviously this is a hot topic <laughs> in New Zealand, and something that we've really, you know, we did some hard graft. We. <laughs> you know farmers in the 80s not we I wasn't here did some hard graft (laughs) in the 80s um to you know there were some really tough times but since then we've really profited from this um and we've really transformed our industry is there anything that you think that we could show the rest of the world with that um in terms of you know there's just even the discussions about losing or reducing subsidies
1: yeah, so subsidies are a bit of a bugbear of mine too. I studied ag in the UK, so a lot of a lot of the work I did was around applying for subsidies, subsidies, how you can diversify your farm to make the most of subsidies, et cetera, et cetera, and it seems to sort of pull away from actually just making the most efficient use of your land. You're more almost farming the subsidies more than you're farming the actual land itself, but they have their place. And the European system with subsidies came about... When after the war, there was a lack of food, so everyone produced a lot of food. Then we got too much food in the EU because they were all motivated by the subsidies they were g- given to produce that extra food. So then the EU decided to start paying people to reduce the amount of food they produced and to create set-aside areas, as they were called, paddocks that you just left fallow. And then they moved more to the environmental type subsidies that um, I knew when I was studying over there. Um, it's a really difficult, one I think Emily, because I think mm. you have to go through a version of the 80s, and mm. and and it's really hard. How do you say to a hill farmer in the UK who's farming, you know, a handful of beef cows? It's not unusual for herds of 20 to 30 beef cows and 100 or so head of sheep. Stop! Like, how can you say to them that sorry, that's a really unviable operation? You and Tenny, your neighbors need to sell up and we'll put a big extensive station type farm on there. Um, And so that's the really tricky thing. Um, We almost, you know, it was a terrible time for many people during the 80s, but what New Zealand did then has set us up for success now, Um, whereas there's no way in hell you could do that in the UK without a huge uproar. Um, yeah, mm. I, I don't think it would happen. So the governments would have to look at ways to help those farmers to change, develop in some way, and make and go down the value add way for their for their produce in order to be able to support themselves and their families. Because often it's mum and dad are still on the farm, son and wife and kids are on the farm, maybe a couple of kids, in fact. So yeah, yeah. it's a tricky one.
0: Yeah, quite different structure, I guess, to the industry compared to what we're used to here. And so we can't really, we're not comparing apples with apples, so we can't say what worked here is going to work,
1: work somewhere else. Yeah. um, but yeah. New Zealand agriculture is a very dynamic ag industry and we do pivot really well. Um, I, I know people are always like, oh, farmers are stuck in the past, and they don't, you know, they just want everything to stay the same which is absolutely rubbish because we don't. You only have to look at the changes in New Zealand agriculture. Well, look at the change to North Otago in the last 20, 25 years. You know, it's gone from being dry sheet land to being irrigated and covered in dairy cows. For better or worse, if we see an opportunity, Kiwis take it and run for it and are happy to change. But that doesn't really translate to Europe, unfortunately, in many cases.
0: Yeah, interesting. So on the flip side of that question then... um, From what's happening overseas, what can we learn here? So before, I guess, how can we make sure that we're stopping it before we fall off the cliff? Be the fence at the top, not the ambulance at the bottom, so to speak.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think it's really interesting, actually. I think, to be honest, we're in a good position, like I said before, because our ag industry does love to adopt new technology. We've got Beef and Lamb and Dairy and zed who have all these research arms, who are looking constantly for ways to improve um you know even the emissions coming out of the effluent ponds are all being looked at at the moment you know crazy things the boluses there's all these cool innovations coming out we need to make sure we keep being at the forefront with technology we can't rest on our laurels though Emily. honestly when you hear all these discussions oh we're already the best in the world it just i just think oh, yeah <laughs> but for how long you have to keep working at being the best. If you're if you're training for a marathon, you can't and you win one, you can't go, oh well I'm the best now. I'm gonna win every single one I do, even if I sit for six months on the sofa and each chair. So, you know, we've got to keep working, would be the, the be my point there.
0: Yeah. It's a good point. Keep on keeping on, keep on searching for that next thing. Yeah. Um Pretty scary though. I think from a New Zealand perspective, like watching what's happening over in the um, EU and thinking, well, that's actually an export market for us. And you know, what's how's the chips going to fall? You know, once this is sort of starting to calm down. Um, but yeah, really interesting doing a dive into it and learning more. So thanks for being a European con- correspondent um, <laughs> to, <laughs> to kick off our podcast. Um, yeah, I, I certainly learned a lot about. You know, It's not just that they're upset about their subsidies being removed um, and regulations coming on. It's actually more of a story around people and taking people on the journey and looking at if the technology is available for the changes that they're being asked to make and also looking as, are we a, is Ag being a scapegoat or is it sort of, you know, um, um, a true problem and how does it all fit into the global system? So, yeah, really interesting um, and I'm sure that, some of our listeners will have some great questions. So pop them up um, on our Instagram We would, or LinkedIn. We would love to have a chat with you um, about the conversation that we've had today. So in closing, um, I heard a quote the other day on another podcast. You'll come to learn that we're both huge fans of podcasts. Probably one of the <laughs> reasons that we decided to start our own. Um And it was Leaders of the West, which is an American personal development podcast that Mabamwe actually found a wee while ago. And unlike most personal development or leadership podcasts, it's actually talking about, uh, based in agriculture, essentially. Um, They call it the Western lifestyle because they're Americans. (laughs) But um, (laughs) the quote was... um, practice builds confidence or practice makes confidence i think whereas typically we say you know practice makes perfection um and i thought that was such a great one practice makes confidence because i think we often we you know often say well perfection is not a thing we've just you know it's doing your best but and we also often don't do things because we don't have the confidence to do them and i think you know this podcast was much you know the more we practice the better we're going to get the more confident we're going to be putting these episodes out but I think we can look at a lot of the conversation we've had today um about making these changes like you're saying with you know the electric tractor we need to practice that we need to see it working in the different conditions and then we'll have confidence to take it into our own farms um yeah I like I like it it's a great great saying um and I think it's a great twist on the
1: the um the old the old version what are are your thoughts yeah the moment i heard that quote i was like oh that is brilliant that's so good because it we always have that practice makes perfect but in reality it's very hard to ever get to perfection and as soon as you get to perfection the bar changes pretty fast so it's a great thing to have in mind definitely while we do this podcast and we try and work our way through working out how on earth you make a podcast um across the side across Otago um without being in person but um, yeah I think it's something we in ag need to keep remembering every day is different new challenges and let's just try to improve our confidence yeah
0: awesome oh thank you so much for joining us on episode one we really appreciate your support and enthusiasm for our Ag and Conversation podcast in these early days, um, and I hopefully you um, can put up with us <laughs> and come back <laughs> next week um, to hear our next conversation. And um, yeah, if you've got any feedback or any thoughts, um, any suggestions on what you might like us to talk about next and um, we'd love to have an com- ongoing conversation with you over on our linkedin page and instagram um both handles are just ag and conversation and um yeah we look forward to
1: talking to you soon Yeah, i'll second that let us know what you think we'd love to hear
0: thanks for joining us as we treat the fat on what is front of mind in the ag world this week We look forward to sharing next week's episode with you. Head to our socials and let us know what you think. We welcome all feedback and would love suggestions on what you want us to dive into next. If you enjoyed the episode, we would really appreciate if you showed your support by sharing, liking and rating our podcast. It really helps us reach new listeners. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week.